Welcome back to Keep Digging for Life, your seminary on the go. I am your host, Jason Epps. As we did last week, we will analyze the chosen. Uh, and just dig into a greater depth as to what they did well, what they stretched, and overall takeaways. I will be giving a light summary, although not as detailed as the past episode, because there's not much additional information that needs to be stated. Because episode one dealt mainly with a lot of the character setup. So without further ado, let's dig in. A general walkthrough as to what occurred in the episode and what we're going to be focusing on. The episode opens about 900 years prior, uh, which, to be honest, really confused me until I I noticed the end with a Sabbath celebration or Shabbat celebration. They mentioned the Eshet Chayil, This is most likely done to by the uh, writers and producers of the show uh, because it ends with the same sort of scene. So this creates what I have said in my other podcast as an inclusio. It bookends the entire thing. So it creates a nice self-containment and Uh, reflection on the episode, it brings it back to its conclusion. It also demonstrates that Shabbat in this was something that was done for a thousand years before Christ appeared. So this is something regular in Jewish culture, which is entirely true. Now, it's unsure exactly, and I'll well, I could just say this here. It's unsure exactly when the formula of Shabbat was utilized. For example, when the Eshev Chayil was added into the Shabbat liturgy, the Woman of Valor, which you might notice that that is the Proverbs 31 woman. That is what is it is actually called in Jewish and scholarly literature, the Eshet, woman of valor. Little bit of Hebrew lesson. Eshet is woman. Chayil is valor. When two words are adjacent to each other in Hebrew, they are in what is often called the construct state, which creates a 
idea of possession or of quality or or relationship could be possession could be uh, source could be quality in this case it's quality the quality of the woman is a virtuous or valor woman the top woman to be seen and attained that and interesting note the Ishkachayil, which is described in Proverbs 31 in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth follows Proverbs. So almost in the Jewish canon construction, the practical example of the Eshet Chayil would be, at least from a canon construction point of view, would be Ruth, and she certainly acted that way. But that's enough sidetrack about the noble woman. <laughs> I find it interesting, but back to our subject. We then fast forward to the present where we see Mary and the and a uh, Pharisee noticing that she's completely different. Because she's actually working at the hairdressers now. She's no longer going by Lilith. She's going by Mary. Her pre-demonic uh, possession name, which is significant. The statement of the women covering their he heads or keeping only um, husbands would be able to see it is true to Jewish cultural form. Women were not permitted to show their hair in public to anyone other than their husbands. It... Um, Women's hair was considered very attractive and seductive, which is an interesting point when you consider Revelation 3 is the description of the scorpions having flows of women's hair. David Jeremiah makes the statement that this communicates the fact that there's something about these creatures that would be seductive. I honestly don't know what would make scorpion creatures subductive, but that's beside the point. And again, I'm getting off track. I'm sorry, I just jump into random thoughts. Huh? All right, and we see Nicodemus um, at his study. He's either copying or making notes on an exorcism now. Copying wouldn't really make sense because he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. That is a job for the scribes, not necessarily for the Pharisees. So depending on what he's doing, it may not be within his historic purview. Uh, I do want to make a note about the when he's referred to the rabbi of rabbis or teacher of teachers. That is very interesting because that that is often kind of... Okay, let me back up. There are different degrees of biblical translation. On the one hand, you've got something like the ESV, which is more word for word, and then you've got the New Living Bible that is more th thought for thought. <laughs> 
or the old NIV 1984 that is more thought for thought. Um, not so much anymore because the new NIV 2011 is following the rules of the ESV, so it's not so much of a dynamic equivalence anymore. Um, there's also the Good News Bible that's dynamic equivalence. All that to say, when you translate, uh, you can either translate things woodenly, literally, or translate them for the meaning. E.g., you can either translate something as the Holy of Holies, which is literally what it says, or the Most Holy. In biblical language, when the Holy of Holies, or Teacher of Teachers, Rabbi of Rabbis, that communicates the highest of something. So, best Teacher of Teachers, best Rabbi of Rabbis, which is interesting that the Abed Dean, um, who, who uh, Nicodemus goes to meet, mentions him as the uh, rabbi of rabbis. Now, I, I must confess something. That name, Abed Dean, intrigued me. I had never heard it before. I tried to research it, wasn't able to find anything because it must be a very technical term. Avid means father. Dean, I wasn't able to parse out what that really is. If I were <laughs> be able to see it, and, well, maybe I should, yeah. I wasn't able to figure out what the second component was, but I can gather from the context that the Avid Dean is higher from uh, than the Nicodemus. He was mainly concerned of bad news when he went in to see the Abed Dean. So, that is <laughs> an interesting element there. Um, and then we see, again, the exchanges between Matthew and Quintus and Matthew's guard. Matthew shows a bit of gumption in informing Quintus about um, Matthew's inability of paying. We see uh, Peter uh, paying to butter up the merchants with with drinks and such. And his brother accuses him of, are you just fattening up lambs before he slaughtered? We see very readily the tension of, do you want to keep your fellow Jews, you know, their family, or do you want to sell out to the Romans? We see that with Peter and his brother, but we also see that with the tax collector. Uh, people don't really like him. We see that he was 
beat up and that his own father uh, sees him as having no son. The They are having the brothers are having to break Shabbat to um, try and catch, but try and catch the supposed merchants, but they are not having any luck. There is a bit of an interchange of with Peter and his wife, but I'll get into that um, a bit later. Uh, we see that Nicodemus' wife it just cares about affluence. Um, that um, she's constantly she's putting on her makeup, doing her hair, and just saying, "Oh, it's a small gathering. To these people, you're equal to God." And in Nicodemus' response. We see how he is beginning to be skeptical of all the opulence and just cultural status that he has. Again, they're developing Nicodemus to sort of set him up to have a come-to-Jesus moment. And we we see his um, Nicodemus' inner change with Mary, and he's shocked by... What Jesus would say, that he uh, seeks no credit. And Mary says that he, she can't tell him because his time had not yet come. And I'll, again, get into that um, later. Um, and then it ends with the uh, foil of both Nicodemus and... Mary having Shabbat and comparing the two, but demonstrating that there's a common thread between them. And even Matthew uh, is able to have Shabbat, but he is only able to have it with a dog, which um, dogs were considered the lowest of the low. You did not want to be with them. They were unclean. So... This shows the sad state that um, Matthew, the tax collector, is in. So, uh, without further ado, we'll get into the issues where they might have stretched things a bit. And then we'll get into the positive element. Alright, one of the elements here is just the interchange and dialogue with the women. First, I'm going to deal with um, Mary and Nicodemus. How she said to Nicodemus, I can't tell you uh, who this is because this time for man to know has not yet come. This was Jesus' response to... The other Mary, Mary his mother, in the weather 
wedding of Cana. How can you tell me to do this when my my time has not yet come? Which kind of marks it as going a little out of order and that this is not where the healing of Mary would probably be. But it sets up a... a I'm more willing to forgive this one because thematically it sets up and feeds into Nicodemus's um, uncertainty and willingness and as a character works well, but I'm still very uncomfortable with they're kind of twisting it really, but I am more willing to overlook this than the couple of other elements that I will dig into. Um, one, and I'm going from like least objectable to the most objectable here, at least from what I can tell. Uh, next thing is the possibility that Mary can read. Um, very few people could read in the ancient world. In order to read, you had to be extremely wealthy. And Mary didn't come from a wealthy family. So the probability that even her father was able to teach her to read was very low. Particularly because women weren't typically taught how to read at, back in those days. So... That's a bit of a stretch, but even a bit worse was the fact that she would be leading Shabbat. Um, typically, it would be a rabbi leading Shabbat, which would be Jesus, which is why it's kind of weird for him to say, go ahead. But even in that case, a woman would typically not, and I would say like nine times out of ten, not lead Shabbat. They may start Shabbat like they do on the Passover Seder, the lighting of the candles, but they don't lead it. That's the job for the man of the household typically, or a man now. Because she's unmarried, I don't know if that rule is not entirely enforced, but I, I see that as a bit sketchy. But the but I'm willing to say, okay, maybe because Mary wasn't married and it was her house, maybe it does fall under the prerogative of her leading Shabbat, but it seems highly skeptical. The big glaring issue that was totally inputted for for modern was the dialogue between Peter and his wife. I, I'm sorry. That I cannot abide. That is totally inputted for modern audiences that would have not happened. And it the whole story of catching fishermen is a extra biblical story anyway. It, it, it's there to add drama, but that aside, she would not talk talk back to him like that and say, "You answer to me." Uh, and God, that that's a, that's important for modern sensibilities, you know. 
wives in, in those days and and biblical constructs were to be submissive to their ma to their <laughs> masters. Because I was thinking of, of Sarah and how she referred to Abraham as her master, but wives were supposed to be submissive to their husbands, seen, not heard. They they were to um they could mention things. Think in the chosen, the wife that is more of a wife of that time is Nicodemus's wife. That the, the in the background, the kind of finagling things that that was what culturally was occurring, and even under the biblical covenant that we are now, wives are are, are commanded to. According to First Corinthians, to submit to their husbands, to defer to the husband's authority as he is under God. So the whole angst was just not a good thing for them to model because it already feeds into culturally what we have going on now, which is like complete disrespect and disregard for us now they didn't take it that far and chosen but i'm just very displeased and it was just there for drama didn't really add much so that that that's really that's a big frustrating element for me on all accounts um but I want to delve into next some of the things they did right. Because they did a lot of things right. So hold on to your heads and we'll keep digging. All right, I analyzed previously what the Chosen kind of stretched, but what did they do right? I, I think they did an incredible job showing that Shabbat was an ongoing practice. It wasn't a, a, a thing that just came out of the blue. It had been going on for hundreds and thousands of years. And I just really like when that is demonstrated, that the Jewish faith and Christian faith has history to it. It's grounded in history. It's not brand new off the, off the bar. We've got time with it and and elements and, and, and truth in, in the sense that it is grounded in things that actually happen. So um, maybe this is just me because I'm slightly a history buff and love church history and the Old Testament in particular. But I, I just love that element and the fact that they tied that in. Um, I love the fact that they continued to show the <laughs> hatred for tax collectors, but not only that, 
that they showed Matthew uh, not as a uh, spineless worm, but as somebody that actually had gumption. Um, and that he kind of expressed in this episode a sadness and wanting to be with his father. I'm assuming that that's who he brought brought the food to or was trying to. And yet that he was willing to eat Shabbat with a dog, which is one, like I said before, one of the most uncleanly animals, which, unclean animals, which shows a sense of growth for him, who who didn't even want to step outside. It, it just seems like he is subtly growing. Now, in regards to Shabbat, I know I was extremely critical of the way they did it, but... There's one huge element that I love here. Uh, and it, it, for the average person, it may be difficult to catch. But they included it. What was different, did they point out? With Mary's Shabbat table, the extra seat for Elijah. Why is that significant? Well, for Passover seders, um, particularly around the first century, they regularly set out a placement for Elijah. Why Elijah? Well, according to Malachi, he was to announce and forerun the Messiah. And side note, we see a lot of the Messianic um, expectations here. In, in episode one, we saw the graffiti on the wall. We also saw the blind man saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? They are feeling the need for the Messiah coming. Why is that? Well, for one, there is a time stamp in Daniel, in Daniel 9, which if you calculate it out, it puts the time of the Messiah coming right in the first century, which is amazing. And it shows that <laughs> God knows the future, and anybody who says he doesn't is a fool. If I'm sorry, maybe that was a little bit harsh, but if God is the creator of the universe, knows everything, is all-powerful, of course he can predict the future. And if he wrote it down... Uh, his timetable is dependable if he gives exact dates, which in this case he did, which is why the Messianic expectation was so great. But that that's a bit of a, <laughs> a side rant. Now, at Passover, the Jews would leave an extra place setting for Elijah. Why? To express their desire for Elijah to come, because if Elijah came, so would the Messiah, logically. 
But when Jesus comes in, where does he sit? He sits in Elijah's seat. The forerunner, no, the Messiah himself sits in the chair designated for the forerunner. The symbolism there is just golden. Probably didn't actually happen, but it's just so rich and oh, <laughs> it's just so much of an undergirding that's just subtly there that they did for you know Bible and Old Testament nerds. So yes, thank you, thank you for doing that. Um, there was also a a subtle gird that well, I guess. Something can good can come out of Nazareth, which is a nomenclature used early uh, early in the Gospels. Now, as far as time, I forgot to mention this when I was critiquing it, but Jesus wouldn't have disciples at this point because he would have done... He would have had his baptism, and then after then, that's when he started getting along. And at least in the chosen, he hasn't been baptized yet, or at the Cana of Galilee miracle yet. So the timing of his disciples is not true. So, but that's just a minor thing. Again, it's just time, and you know they're. Doing things for artistic license, and they even, to their credit, they mentioned that at the very beginning um, of episode one. So, gotta gotta tip my hat to to them for that. Um, so, yeah, ah. Uh, Oh, the the other thing, and this, again, is just a minor thing. Why would they say his name is Jesus? I mean, they were doing such a good job with the Hebrew terms and the Old Testament terms. I would have just, I know, it's probably for approachability and recognizability, but I would have, like... A Yeshua, just to be more authentic, but that's nah, neither here nor there. You know, you want people to know who he is without having to think too hard. I guess I don't know. Uh, approachability and recognizability is uh, good at that point. But one thing that I really um, like to know Ellen with this is there was a juxtaposition at the end. You saw the opulence of Nicodemus and his Shabbat and the humbleness of Mary's and her Shabbat dinner. Mary's was functionally and what they did oh sorry let me back up Mary's was functionally doing what Christ 
said to do in the Gospels of when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the blind, the lame that cannot pay you back. And, and also to sit uh, not at the head of the table, but at the lowest place. Interestingly enough, um, the one thing that was um, noticed, that I noticed, was the fact that when a, another Jewish man came in, he said, uh, try to find a seat near the head of the table, the very thing that Jesus said not to do. So this was a very good dichotomy and juxtaposition. Also, it was kind of interesting how the guy who we saw in opulence, Matthew, had to eat with the lowest of the low, kind of maybe a bit of foreshadowing at, at this point. But I just, again, I really liked that. I really liked um, Nicodemus making a subtle reflection when he was referring to the Hasmonean tapestry and saying, who is responsible for repressing our religious belief now? 200 years ago, it was Antiochus, Antiochus the fourth, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, who forced everybody to be Greek until Judas Maccabeus came in and deposed of him. So, again, kudos for historical accuracy, but that is a very... Um, acute statement to mention. So again, I'm I'm just very pleased at that. Uh, so those are the those are the positives of it, and I will come back with a conclusion. Thank you. Welcome back. So, what can we say? For all of its stretchings and failings, again, I think the this episode of Chosen, while not 100% biblically accurate, communicates faithfully the biblical themes and drives home the point. They're using biblical themes to construct uh, a narrative to push the audience to uh, see that Jesus is the Christ, which, again, I totally support um, them doing. <laughs> As always, thank you so very much for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or any future things you wish for me to cover, please contact me at keepdiggingforlife at gmail.com and I will see you, Lord willing, next week. Until then, shalom and keep digging. <laughs>